Good morning, everyone. It is the morning after Budget 2020. And of course, the big question that I hope that all of us are reflecting on this morning is whether Treasury has been on the money and that pun very much intended. You know, I was looking at the reactions of various commentators, political parties, to yesterday's budget by the finance minister, Inogonbane, and it was his maiden one. And you would swear, like, people were watching a completely different event, even amongst the opposition parties, because you accept, you, you normally would expect the tripartite, well, the ANC, not the whole alliance, the ANC at least, to be the ones who will be backing for the particular minister that is delivering the speech. But what you find is that even with the opposition parties, there's no consensus whether or not this is indeed a good news budget. You have, for example, the IFP saying, well, they got the balance right. It was a tough balancing act. And then at the other extreme, you've got a co-representative saying this is the worst budget that we have had in our post-apartheid era. And then you have within the alliance itself slagging off of the minister from Kosatu, who thinks that this budget is not conducive to creating jobs. And I'm thinking to myself as a reader, as a South African, if I don't know the first thing about numbers and economics, I don't know who to believe because not everyone can be right. There is an incompatible set of responses to the budget. So I really have two objectives over the next 90 minutes for you um, as part of this event that we've put together for you at Times Live. The first is hopefully to translate it all. The numbers must make sense to you. I don't want you to get bored. I don't want you to be lost in the minutiae. I want you to have a deep, basic, practical understanding by half past one of what this budget means, what it says, and what the implications are for you as an individual and for us collectively as a country. But along the way, secondly, I do want you to be empowered also to dip into some of the complexity. So, for example, the trade-offs that were made, what, what is the logic behind it? If you find yourself suddenly having a windfall in terms of the amount of taxes you collected, how do you make the decision whether to pay off existing debt or whether to quickly do a short-term stimulus for job creation opportunities, for example, given how high the numbers are. So those are the kinds of issues that um, we will be exploring over the next 90 minutes. And I have a stunning panel, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce them to you right now. We've got Mr. Dondo Mohajane with us, who, of course, is the Director General of Treasury. Dondo is extremely experienced, and we welcome his deep institutional knowledge that he will be um, you know, bringing to this discussion, Dondo's got the unenviable position, like all the DGs of, on the one hand, uh, having to make sure that his work coheres with his political principle, and on the other hand, being accountable administratively to you and me as part of the bureaucracy that at least in theory is supposed to be apolitical. So we're grateful that Dondo is with us. I'll chat to him just now. Then I've got one of my favorite economists in the country. I'm glad she's available, uh, Tab, um, Tabi Lioka. Dr. Lioka, of course, is someone that you will be very familiar with on our pages as well. Uh, she writes into the issues of the day. She's also been involved in terms of policy formulation or at least advice in that regard. And some of the big debates around the fiscus and how we allocate money when it comes to Social Security in particular. Um, she is someone that I like because she is not just discursive. She actually takes a position on tough issues and she provides an argument. So we're grateful that we have Tabi with us as well. And last, but by no means least, uh, Professor Michael Sex, uh, who is with Wits University, also deeply committed to trying to make sense, especially of inequality. And any of you who have followed my work over the years will know my mantra around this. We are not short of challenges in South Africa. We have to solve all of them. But we have to, if we have to pick, in my personal opinion, between the quadruple evils of low growth, 
high levels of unemployment, um, joblessness, that is um, also deep inequality and poverty. Inequality for me is probably the worst sin because it correlates statistically with some of the most gross parts of life in South Africa, such as gratuitous levels of high crime and violence. And inequality is something that's dear to Michael's heart, and I think rightly so. You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said sing it sing it and then they shared that zone no i'm not going to apologize can i have my ipad please so they stole it uh michael tabby and dondo thank you so much for being part of this discussion it's a pleasure Thank to be here. Thank you. <clears throat> I want to start with almost a definitional question at the risk of being nerdish. When I, as I've just said in my introduction, when I look at people's reaction to the budget, they are so incompatible that I thought to myself in preparation for our discussion, the logical first question is to ask each of you, what is success when it comes to the budget? What is the success criterion by which or what measurement would you use before you hear the budget? going into that session to say to yourself, if A, B, and C criteria are met, then I will say this is indeed a good news budget. And maybe I'll start with you, Tabi. So I, I liked this budget um, because it was, it was put together under very difficult circumstances. I think, firstly, we are a very polarized society. I think I've never experienced such a South Africa. And, and, and for many reasons, I think that um, what has or propelled this is, is COVID and the rate and the increased uh, poverty rate. Um, you know, there have been large debates or huge debates in the run up to, to this budget. Um, you know, there's the camp that is concerned about fiscal policy and, and debt. And there's the camp that just wants us to extend social support. And I think they actually appeased both camps um, to an extent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Donda, I want to bring you in here because for you, it's not a theoretical, <laughs> theoretical question. You are part of the thought leadership that has to make that call before the budget is actually drawn up and the monies that we had collected become allocated to the various competing national interests. Can you explain to my listeners and to the readers of our various platforms and to the average South African taxpayer how you go about deciding what maketh a successful budget in the process of drawing it up? Thanks, uh, uh, Sobias. Thank you very much. Uh, for me, first I look, I mean, I've got various clients. Uh, some of, I've got two clients here coming from various backgrounds, diverse and yourselves, you know, representing the public in this case. Firstly, you know, it, 
you have to see and, and ask yourself what's in there for me as a South African. Ordinary South African, ordinary grandmother and grandfather who walks the streets and who obviously because of old age cannot work anymore for them. So you've got that constituency out there. Second constituency is my colleagues in government who have to ensure that other public services are delivered and are, are we sufficiently uh, you know, giving enough resources to them um, and and of course, the markets. I mean, the markets for me remain critical and important because um, the, 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 the pricing of, 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 of debt is dependent on the story, on the sustainability of the story that I'm putting together. And so yesterday, you know, as soon as it's 10 past two, I would be on my phone. You'll think I'm reading the speech, but no, I'm worried. I'm checking the markets, the movement in terms of the rent, because... They would, remember they would have read the analysts would have would have been reading this from six o'clock in the morning because they've got access mm. to documents at the time. So at two o'clock they release all news news wires around the world will pick up. So immediately then I would know uh, the story was well received or not. But mm. yes, it's not be it's not the same. I mean there, there are those who think we did not do anything for the poor yesterday, uh, and but we think we did more. There are those who think. We, we, we are pro-business, <clears throat> but yes, maybe by cutting corporate income tax, we seem to be pro-business, but the underlying reasons is to ensure that we make sure that uh, economic activity and economic growth and jobs are created and anything the 1% can do more and can do a lot in ensuring that businesses remain. Those that we're planning to close are not going to close, and then we can attract others where the mm. tax jurisdictions are much, much higher than 20, 27%. So they can come back. They can come. Yeah. So there are many uh, clients out there. But yes, we, we won't be able to satisfy everybody. Uh, and colleagues in government may not be satisfied. But the reality is that we were balancing. Uh, we had a huge, a serious balancing act here. And we did that. We did that for workers. Yeah. We did that for business. We did that for ordinary poor people. Mm. DJ, I'll come back to, to some of that. Michael, I, I'm not yet asking the evaluative question whether or not the DG successfully balanced it. I'm really interested in what counts as success. If you wear your professorial academic hat, what would be on the templates before you start marking the budget as an ideal budget? Well, when I, a few years ago, worked uh, with Dondo uh, putting together the budget, um, I used to say to the team there in the office as we got to the last days of the budget that the only thing that really matters is that the numbers must add up. So uh, we have uh, something that in South Africa very few developing countries have, and that is a treasury that maintains a high level of technical competence that is able to tell South Africans how much are we spending, what are we spending it on, where are we getting the money from. Uh, and that simple act of being transparent and clear and um, accurate about these flows of money uh, that government presides over is uh, really the bottom line as far as National Treasury is concerned. And as far as I can see, uh, that level of professional, professionalism and competence remains uh, a national asset that South Africa has. But then you get into uh, what are those numbers saying? Yes. And uh, what they are saying is what, what a budget does is to redistribute every rand that is spent in a, in a government's budget 
is a rand that is taken from somewhere in the economy. Government doesn't generate its own resources. All it does is to extract resources from the country, from South Africans, uh, from some South Africans and give it to other South Africans, either, either in the form of cash payments or in the form of services that government provides like basic education. And so it's not surprising that we will have different views on the budget because in a society that is as polarized and divided by, by income, that is as unequal as South Africa is, uh, this act of redistribution that government engages in will have very different consequences for different people. And, and, and therefore, I suppose in that sense, what would be success is creating some sense of uni uh, unifying uh, uh, understanding of, okay. you know, the pain of paying taxes might still be there, but at least we should understand why we are having to pay taxes and, and confident that the right mm. choices are being made. Mm. By the way, if wherever you are tuned in from, please engage us. If you are watching this on YouTube, leave some comments there on social media. My colleagues will do their best as quickly as possible to aggregate your questions and feed it through. And you can put a question directly to my panel or just have your say so that we can actually read it out and engage it, uh, what your opinion is. DG, I want to come back to you because we don't have you for the entire time. You're only with us for another 10 minutes or so. I mean, Michael says, um, I think quite optimistically, that um, one of the sort of soft success criteria is a unified understanding of what we're trying to do under very difficult circumstances. By that measurement, yesterday was not a success. Uh, this is what Kosatu had to say, for example. I mean, Kosatu's response, as we've reported on on Times Live, includes some really choice phrases, including the following, and I quote, overall, this was an extremely disappointing budget that repeated old promises, continued its austerity trajectory, and was devoid of any new policy interventions to solve the problem of economic stagnation, um, et cetera, et cetera. But an interesting further bit, it says, the central thrust of the budget while providing some relief to the unemployed, is to focus on reducing the debt. We have long argued, says Kosatu, that the nation's number one economic problem is economic stagnation and not debt levels as important as it is. And a couple of other people agree with Kosatu and have said that while the budget is, in a sense, pro-poor by caring about social security, that the structural issues in the economy, including getting sustainable levels of economic growth above 4% over the next three, four years, conducive to job creation, this budget doesn't achieve that. How do you respond to that? Look, I mean, Kosatu, you know, they're entitled to their own views on this matter. Yeah. But but it, it, one expected that, obviously, would not, as I said in my opening remarks, satisfy everybody. And, and Kosatu, of course, is one of those people not satisfied with what we put together. But I, I have... A, you know, a balancing act that I had to make in terms of what we are putting out. Um, what what does a hundred percent debt to GDP mean? Uh, uh, what does it mean for our debt? I should be worried as a, as a public servant in, in Treasury when I'm paying three hundred and three billion rent towards debt service cost and it's rising, and the budget for peace and security is two hundred twenty billion. And the budget for health is far less than 300 billion. So I should be worried. Um, and because if I was keeping my debt 
at manageable levels and low, then I'll be able to build more schools, put more boots on the ground in terms of police, in terms of you know, uh, safeguarding the, the territory of our, of our country. But we can't do that because we are spending a lot, a lot on debt service costs and it's rising. So, but if you look at again, the gross borrowing requirement is reducing by at least 138 billion year on year and 130 over the next two years. I must be comfortable that I'm reducing that. Effectively, it means I'm going to pay less debt, uh, interest uh, on, on debt. And that for me is something that I think everyone should understand and know. Um, and, and I know you didn't ask me this, uh, but if I have to then demonstrate to go and get cheaper loans, I must go and do that. If the World Bank is giving me at 1% and someone in the market is giving me at 8 or 10% because of the exposure and because of the risks that any uh, you know, creditor looks at and say, but you are too risky, I cannot. Why am I too risky? I'm too risky because uh, of, of the policy frameworks and, and the dangerous territory that I'm already in. So, can I, and, can and, I just stop you there? Yeah, I, I totally get that. I'll bring in the economist in a second. I just want to play devil's advocate here with those who were unhappy on this particular issue. So I get the following, I think. I get the importance of keeping a very, very close eye on debt levels because we can even add to what you are saying in w- by way of supporting it. We do not want future generations to be saddled with debt des- decisions we make irresponsibly right now because I think that's another reason why we should make sure the debt does not balloon, that the amount that we are serving when we're servicing the debt is not massive um, because it, besides the opportunity cost in terms of health, education, and other social spending, there's also the reality that future generations will bear the consequences of enormous debt that we have r- raked up. But, but the question that I'm asking is not so much for you to give an easy justification of keeping debt low, which is easy to do. The tougher question is to explain to me in very simple English, how do the numbers that Michael is talking about, we want to make sense of the numbers, how do the numbers from Izolo translate into job creation, translate into dealing with structural problems in the economy? Firstly, I think, let me emphasize what the president said. Government is not about creation of jobs. Government is about creating a conducive environment to create jobs. However, there are public employment programs that by nature, on their own, are public employment opportunities. But there are 15 million South Africans without a job, or even more. It is those ones that we cannot provide. So we have to make a, an environment conducive for that to, uh, to, to actually, what are we doing? What are we saying? Ease of doing business is one, is a hallmark of the structural reform that we have to embark on, including other reforms that are critical that are going to unlock the potential that this economy has. And But if you look at public employment programs, we are putting in money, it may be little, 18 billion over two years, a huge number, by the way. And this over and above some of the short-term creation job opportunities that we've done in the past and a very elaborate, which you have to look at, by the way, and review properly so that the impact is seen. The, 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 impact, the impact that EPWP, the Expanded Public Works Program provides and the Community Development Work Program provides. So that's government's small little contribution towards the bigger challenge of jobs. I'm not even concerned and worried about that for now. For me, is ensuring that business thrives, and by saying, uh, you know, we, re- we reduce 
corporate income tax. There are many reasons why we did that, but one of the basic reasons is for businesses to be able to thrive and not to have more profits and shareholder value to be maximized, but to expand businesses. By expanding businesses and interest simply means you are then having creating opportunities for more people to be employed. So we, we I think we did a lot here. It's a good start. It's a good start, but uh, we cannot say we've been saying this over and over again. We are in a complex environment. The social relief of distress, for instance, I would have taken the 40 billion rent and 44 billion rent that I'm giving to us, social relief of distress, and do more on the infrastructure side, do more on other, uh, in, you can call it incentives, for instance, if you want to expand that, because it's through those that government can partner with business and business can create more jobs. So I think what we are doing is let's create a good environment uh, for businesses to flourish. And by de facto, it simply then means the economy then uh, can, can obviously expand. By definition, then tax revenues come in. Then I'm able to do a whole lot of for more uh, that I want to do. But currently, I'm constrained because tax revenues are slow, are low. And it's only now that with this windfall, by the entire right, it's a windfall and we treat it as such, uh, so obvious. I'm, I'm, we can't spend everything. Let's rather be, Michael, when he was a dad, and I hope later on he'll elaborate on this, he talked of fiscal sustainability, intergenerational equity and debt reduction as, as the hallmarks of our fiscal policy stance. We're still on there. We cannot indebt future generations. We have to come up with physically sustainable programs. We're not always successful as treasury because we work within the collective of government. But however, we have to demonstrate that we are responsible uh, you know, officials. We want to ensure that the future of this country is not compromised by reckless decisions that we'll make from the, on the yeah. fiscal front. But however, emphasize on things that we need to do, which are reform and growth. The growth agenda should be accelerated. Yeah. DG, we, I didn't know we only have you for 20 minutes, um, but I'm grateful for it. I know you've got a busy day. So I'm going to let you go and continue critiquing you in absentia and on the digital platform, timeslive.co.za. But thanks so much for coming on and being part of the first 20 minutes of yes, this conversation. Thank you. And Michael, I see, must come back to Treasury. It looks like he's starting to play the guitar there. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks so much, DJ. I really appreciate thank you. it. Tabi and Michael, let's continue the conversation. And um, and maybe, Tabi, you can start here. I mean, there's so much minutiae to get in. I don't even want to say much. You heard the exchange between me and the DG. You heard me quoting from Kosatu. You know what was interesting about Kosatu? I didn't even give another, and you, you'll appreciate this. You might even find it um, ironic coming from Kosatu. They were even unhappy with this 12-month extension uh, of the COVID-19 relief uh, grants because they were saying that's a classic example of on the one hand being pro-poor for five minutes but if you don't have structural reform and getting people to be economic actors to be self-sufficient then really this budget appears in the short term to be a relief which which should not you know mock because if you have nothing it makes a difference in terms of scuffing for tomorrow um, however it was interesting hearing Kosatu coming up with similar critiques as some right economists and sounding libertarian, but from liberal and left-wing premises. I, you know, um, 
this this is the one country where technically i should be left but i don't identify with the left it's it's a it's, it's you know it, it actually um angers me to a bit because I, I i'm definitely not right but i just don't and I, I don't know what the left um really wants there are a few things that dondo mentioned that i think many people miss publicly um you know the the general public you know he spoke about the markets and many people don't know what the markets are and the markets are investors both south african and international market uh, investors that buy our bonds so they buy our debt and he talked about you know the returns he said between 10 and 8%. So what happens here and this is something I'd really like like to sit down with those you know left I think sometimes when you're too left you become right. Uh you know you move over to the right and similarly when you're too right I just think they merge somewhere in the middle and they sound the same. But um so these investors let's call, you know use South African lingo. These are white monopoly capital as you can get. They buy our debt and they get a return from it and a very lofty return. This debt that they buy enables uh, public sectors to get a salary, enables um, the extension of social grants, enables or the social support, enables the, the, the you know, construction of hospitals and roads and infrastructure. So actually, and they are getting a benefit in terms of the high return for buying this debt. Why are our returns higher or why is our interest on payment higher than let's say other countries? And this is also something that many people miss in the public debate. Yes, debt is high. And uh, yet our uh, debt servicing cost is high. It actually is higher than in other countries that have a lot higher debt than we do, for instance, the US and Japan and Europe. Why is that the case? Now imagine you and a very, or let me, let me use myself, myself and um, Rupert walking into Investec. And Mr. Rupert wants to get a fifth house, right? And I just want to buy an apartment. And Investec looks at Mr. Rupert and says, you know, Mr. Rupert, welcome. We, we have a long relationship with you and your family, including your father. We, we obviously would love to send, you know, to extend a loan to you. They trust Mr. Rupert. Mr. Rupert has a lot of money. He's cash flushed. And Mr. Rupert can pay that debt instantly. But here comes me. And I ask for just an, you know, a, a little bit of um, a loan to buy an apartment. I'm risky, you know, my, my finances are precarious. The bank is not sure whether I'm, I'm able to pay or not. And therefore, when we get both these loans, he gets a bigger chunk, but actually he will actually get a better interest rate yeah. than I do. Yeah. That's because the, the bank views him as a less risky person than myself. And that's why, for instance, South Africa, uh, is in this, you know, debt service and costs, the interest on our payment is so high because of mm. our risk premium. So that is the actual problem. It's not so much our debt. It's because we are perceived to be this very risky country. And as a result, our, the investors, those who buy our debt are saying, look, I can buy your debt, but actually I'm requ requesting a higher premium on your debt. 
And, yeah. and that's what get, it takes it out, out of kilter. Then he okay. mentioned something which, just lastly, he mentioned something which I think, you know, the, uh, it's, it's contained in, in the budget review, but also something that I've always thought, geez, you know, in 20, 2008, 2009, South Africa's debt was around about 600 billion. That's just a little bit over ESCOM's current debt. Just a little bit. This is our country debt. Now mm. our debt is in, in, the, in the trillions. Mm. and in a very short uh, uh, space of time. And so if you divide it per person, in 2008, 2009, per person, debt was around 23,000 rand. Okay. If you do it now, per person, debt is around 70,000 rand. Mm. So when you talk about, you know, we need this, and Kosachi says you need to put, give money to the poor, you need to get, you need to look at it from a whose money is it where does money come from even when public sector wants an increase in salaries we're literally borrowing money from the mm. international investors and some investors who are in cape town mm. to 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 pay your salary i hear you now, and, I, and I think... back to a household households yeah. would never ever manage their finances in this way sure i i think that's compelling tabi and i and i and it coheres you know, and it's consistent with arguments you've made over the last year. But Michael, I want to bring you in here because how do we square the circle? Tabi tells us if we had a household version of this, we wouldn't borrow recklessly because that will get us into a debt spiral that will lead to us being chucked out of that house and never being able to get a loan from the neighbor, let alone from a loan shark or, or a bank. But on the other hand, I think to myself, but it's easy for Tabi and me to accept the cogency of her position because we are moneyed middle-class South Africans who don't have to think about indigency. Uh, so I suppose I'll go back to the, to the point I make, made earlier, which is uh, any budget of a government is an exercise in redistribution. And uh, South Africa has, in the developing world, one of the most redistributed budgets of all. We redistribute more of our national income than, than almost any other uh, developing country. So we take huge uh, uh, volumes of money out of the pocket of taxpayers. And, and when we think of taxpayers, we're talking in the main of the most affluent South Africans. And we transfer those resources to the poor uh, in the form of, of cash payments, but more importantly, in the form of basic education, health care and, and security uh, uh, for, and criminal justice. Uh, those services that really only government can provide. Now, if we uh, want to avoid uh, paying higher taxes, uh, for this redistribution. One way we can do that is by going into debt. So we, we raise the resources through debt instead of through taxes. And the key difference is it for, for, from a point of view. If you uh, raise money on the debt market, you are uh, doing so, you're engaging with people who are selling voluntary, forced to pay taxes. When you lend money to government, it's voluntary, and what you demand in return is a, a return, a payment that, that, that Tabi was talking about. So uh, at the end of the day, 
the only way uh, to address these problems uh, in a sustainable way is to grow the economy. Uh, we can differ with Kosatu about what will lead to that growth, but the fiscal uh, problems that we face today are really are about, and I'm sure Dondo, if he was still here, would agree, they are about economic stagnation. Uh, and secondly, these flows of income from people with high income to low income, you can redistribute more and more. But if you don't change the, the economic structure that generates that income, the structure of land ownership, the structure of where we live, the structure of who owns the economy, if you, if you don't change yeah. that, uh, you will still remain with this stagnant and, and highly unequal economy. And, and the budget can't really do that. The only thing that can do that is 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 an effective uh, policy from the rest of government, which, quite frankly, I think is is largely absent. Absolutely. Okay, I want to see what our listeners, our readers, viewers, I guess, on YouTube are saying. Let's see whether we can get some of those comments or questions. Just to flash up, I really uh, don't want us to only be speaking at you, although I'm grateful at my excellent panelists for explaining so much and also at the same time, staking a view on some of these issues and justifying their particular positions. Nelson says he must recognize disabled and older people. Why doesn't he double the amount that goes to pensioners and disabled persons as well, um, instead of just households with um, double orphans? So that's one comment. Um, I think you've got a partial answer from both Tabby and Michael to your question, Nelson. We've got to be careful on the one hand, we have a duty morally, constitutionally, to make sure that the weakest are taken care of by the state, a duty of care. On the other hand, we've got to be fiscally prudent to make sure that we don't have good intentions that lead to economically disastrous outcomes. Tabi, it seems to me there's an elephant in this conversation. And I, I thought about that yesterday while listening to the budget. And I thought to myself, please, pretty please, with a cherry on top, I hope media houses do not only interview economists. I mean, I love you and I love Michael. Um, but the reason, the reason I thought so is that, and Michael has just nailed it, fundamentally, nothing that the finance is by way of the numbers, literally reading out the number allocations of the budget, can deal with things that I think all of us would agree on, which is state capacity to be able to do stuff with the monies that is allocated. So you can't create, as the DG says, an environment conducive to doing business unless you actually have home affairs working, unless you've got small business working properly and cutting the red tape. Similarly, it doesn't matter how much more money you give to my NG if they are useless in getting textbooks from A to B, procuring services to get rid of putrotines in toilets, we might have another Michael Komape on our hands. Can you speak into, complimenting Michael on this point, the importance of technocracy and also the capacity of the state? Because a budget shouldn't be put on trial for things that actually are the duties of other parts of government. Absolutely. And I think that is, um, uh, you know, the National Treasury is often criticized for its allocation and that many departments are also competing or contesting how much they want. And I know that, you know, Michael has firsthand experience in this. And 
the sad thing about our predicament is that growth that Michael speaks about, you know, the lack of GDP growth is not because, it, you know, it's, there are many reasons, but a lot, of it, a lot of it has to do with state capacity. And by state capacity, I think the president was very correct that it's not the state that employs, but what the state does is, is should provide a conducive environment for the economy to grow. Here's an example. So um, when the trains weren't functioning in the Western Cape, trains are extremely um, more ex um, inexpensive. So they're much cheaper than, than taxis. And in the unemployment numbers, especially the discouraged workers in the Western Cape, many people had said that they're discouraged because there is no transportation to work, to look for jobs. Not because they are tired of looking for jobs. They can't mm. afford to actually travel to, to mm. the city because the transport system is not, is, is not operational. Um, if you look at uh, municipalities, for instance, if municipalities functioned, if there was water and sanitation, if there was road infrastructure, if there were, never mind that you actually, in order for you to attain that, you need to employ people. Um, and, and, and once you start looking after a municipality, uh, it makes it easier for people to, to navigate. It makes it easier for people to, to, to go to hospital that is free because the state, because our taxes have enabled the poor to be able to go to hospital for free. Uh, but at the same time, what you're hearing from, if you speak to people in rural areas, they have to cough up a lot of money to travel far in order for them to get even subpar um, uh, uh, healthcare. Similarly, I can say the same about education. There's, there's hosp uh, schools are dilapidated in many of our rural areas. And parents are saying, look, I won't take my kid to the school. I'd rather actually my kid goes a little further. I'll pay the taxi, uh, um, spend on taxis so that my kid gets goes to a better school. And this is a poor person making this decision. Uh, the money has already been allocated by National Treasury so that there are roads that are built, there are schools that are built, there are hospitals that are built, so that it makes it easier for, for the poor people to not spend their money to actually utilize these, these amenities for free or, yeah. or not pay as much as they do. And that's what we, why we have way. Hmm. We had all, all this, these issues that we're talking about. If they were solved, the living wage wouldn't there wouldn't be a need to have it so high because hospitals, as I mentioned, would be affordable. Um, healthcare would be, you know, um, hospitals would be free. We'd get good schooling in rural areas. You would have mm. transportation that anyone can use in the Western Cape so that they can look for a job. And more significantly, okay. you would have spectrum that would be released. Anyone in the country can look for a job center, an urban center to look for a job or an yeah. urban hub. But, you know, that's that's output, that's productivity. Um, that's the lack of it. So we need to ensure that we we fix um, the state. And you talked mm -hmm. about, you know, the capacity. If you go to municipalities, a lot of that money um, is either misspent or underspent, uh, especially in the poorer municipalities where actually yeah. that money needs to be spent. And when mm. it is spent, it is spent, you know, in areas that don't, doesn't generate economic activity or economic growth. Um, 
So, you know, again, we need to, there, there is this realization, I think publicly everybody knows that we need to capacitate the state. All you need to do is go to a licensing department or whatever to see how inefficient yeah. um, the yeah. state is. Um, but unfortunately, again, it goes, I think it's the labor rigidities within the public mm. sector, well, within South Africa, but you can't let go of a person who's not doing their yeah. job. Um, it's very difficult politically to let go of someone and replace them with a, a lot, a younger, more um, energetic and somebody who's committed to actually delivering um, on their job. Uh, so it's, we're a bit, we're stuck. Yeah. Um, if you, I think there was a document in the municipality uh, paper that was released last year, something like 62% of people in, who work in municipalities can't use a computer. So how are documents then saved? Um, how are invoices kept? How are yeah, all those yeah. things are yeah. a problem? Hundred percent. Unfortunately, all of that contributes to yeah. the, you know in a in a quite a, a significant way in mm. the fact that we are not growing as a mm. as a as an economy. Michael, I want to change direction a little bit, and and feel free to to suggest a different direction if you don't want to go down this one. When I started our discussion, I I said parenthetically that we are not short of a, a shopping list of problems to solve for as a country. One that I feel particularly passionate about is inequality because it correlates with so much social discontent, including our gratuitous violence that accompany the crime levels. And some criminologists think it correlates even more strongly than with inequality than it does with unemployment or poverty. So, if I listen to your last answer and the contribution made by Tabby just now, it seems to me the question of how the money is spent and not just how it is allocated is important. Is the allocations, in your view, appropriately made to deal with inequality? I, I don't think, uh, I mean, when you say allocation, uh, we're talking about how to divide a pie. Yeah. And uh, uh, so if we take uh, the resources available to government uh, as the pie, and so we're not you're asking how do we grow the pie, or it's, 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 is the pie given to the right people in the right quantities? And I think, yes, it is, because uh, we have a constitution that sets out uh, fundamental rights in the Bill of Rights, including social and economic rights, such as basic education, health care, housing, and the like. And if you look at the budget, there's no doubt that uh, the budget is aligned, is, is allocated largely in line with those uh, requirements. Of course, there are other things that are needed also by the Constitution. So we need to have a criminal justice system it also needs to be, uh, uh, people need to be employed there, police officers need to be employed. So if you look over the last, uh, since the dawn of democracy, there's really only one big uh, structural change in the, the allocation of the budget, and that has been the, the, the huge decline in spending on defence. Uh, and and all of that has all that uh, defense spending has really been reallocated to the social budget to to what Treasury calls the social wage, um, but what I would call social goods, things that only the government can provide. So so um, unfortunately, that's not that great for the defense force. 
And, and what you get, so, so people in the defense force will say, well, defense is underfunded. Uh, and, and again, um, uh, students at university during fees, fees Must Fall were saying that universities are underfunded. And probably they are right. Uh, the problem is that uh, the police force is also underfunded. And so is the health system. And so is local government. And so is uh, the, 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 the education system. So the problem is not the allocation of resources between different uses. The problem is the general availability of uses to South Africans. And we can look at the budget to answer that question. But what we must really understand is that, you, you, you know, if, we, if you compare us with the UK, we have about the same population million people in South Africa. But the income or the, the, the size of the economy in the UK is probably, I'm just, this is a random guess, but I would guess somewhere like 30 or 40 times bigger than the economy in South Africa. So all of us are sharing a smaller cake and that's why everybody is underfunded. And the only way you can address that problem, again, is by having a path of growth and development that creates jobs and creates income and creates value for the world in some way or another. And mm -hmm. achieving that path of development, I mean, in a sense, this is a, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's not a useful debate to say, is it government or is it the private sector? Because achieving that path of development requires some unifying vision uh, yeah. across all South Africans about what we are trying to achieve and how to achieve it, mm -hmm. uh, in which government and the private sector and communities are, are, are united. And I think that's really what we don't have. And until we have that, we will have this situation where everything is underfunded. Let me say one thing uh, about allocation that I, I think in many respects, uh, the budget is redistributive. And what that means is, you know, with monetary policy, with the Reserve Bank, uh, you know, Parliament is not really consulted. It's a technical decision that is taken how to set, set the interest rates, which we can debate in another forum. But with the budget, all of the allocations are driven by political decisions. So I was looking at the numbers from yesterday's budget this morning. Yeah. And uh, the thing that really struck me is that for a university in South Africa, per student, 80,000 rand. Uh, the government spends 80,000 rand per university student in South Africa. But for a technical college student, or for a high school student, we spend less than 20,000 rand each on those students. So, and, and the, for the university students, the spending per student has been increasing year after year for the last decade. For the students in technical colleges or in, in, in secondary school, in, in basic education, the allocation per student has been falling and falling for the last 10 years in real terms. So we have an allocative choice a change in the allocation towards universities and away yeah. from basic education and away from technical colleges, which is driven by the fact that university students occupy a, a strong position in our politics, whereas That's high true. school students do not. 
So, mm. so there are there are concerns about the way that allocation is is moving. But uh, mm. in general, I think the issue is not really the way we allocate the pie, but the size of the pie itself. Well, I, I mean, I, I hear you, Michael, and I do want to talk about how we grow the pie because I am very concerned as a South African that in the medium term, we are revising downwards that forecast to around 1.8%. I don't think anyone will disagree with me to, that, that that is not conducive to dealing with the proverbial triple challenges of inequality, poverty, and unemployment. It's got to be much higher than that, and sustainably so over many years, if we are going to deal with the deep structural issues in our political economy. But the allocation of the pie, whatever its size, is worth ventilating, because there are some tricky decisions still to be made. And I want to bring you in here to get your view on part of that allocation, Tabi. Let's take, for example, one of the headlines this morning that almost 50% of South Africans are now subject to some or other grant when it comes to South Africa's social security. Now, I think um, Michael's response to me was excellent, but I do think that my question perhaps was poorly formed because what I was really getting at with the allocation question is if we have deep income inequality, asset inequality, wealth inequality, inequitable access to good education. We've got apartheid spatial planning, which itself is a form of inequality in terms of accessing land, being able to do things with it, not culturally, but economically. And so the list of the different elements of inequality can be cashed out. Then my question is, if you look at the money allocated for social security, do we get appropriate returns on the investment if the investment success criterion is over the next three to five years, that allocation is supposed to help us to reduce inequality? Mm, that's a that's a tough question because if I look at previous budgets, I don't you know I don't think that's been the case, and that's why we are at such a low uh, in a low growth environment. Um, but that's not because of of the allocation per se. I think it's it's because of or the lack of implementation. Um, so. Here's a here's a somebody asked me this this morning I think on on TV that look education has been given an extra two, 20 billion do I think that um, it would you know improve the education um, system in the country and it and it won't it's not about the money we all know that our um, budget that is allocated towards education is much higher than it's higher than all of every African country and per capita it's higher than many countries in Europe, and yet the outcomes do not reflect the amount of resources that are thrown to education, um, for instance. And so, so again, it is, are we putting money in areas that would generate growth? Uh, and, and for the longest time, you know, National Treasury has been talking about we need to move away from consumption-based budget to a, to a, or a consumption-based expenditure to a more investment-based, where we allocate money in areas that would grow the economy. But we keep going back to funding um, consumption needs, uh, which means that we are pushing or delaying investing in areas that would generate growth, whether we employ people that would actually help um, households' income grow ultimately as the economy grows. Um, so, so I think that is really the problem in terms of it's not so much about 
I, you know, it's not really about the allocation, but is it, uh, but there are issues in terms of, are we allocating in areas or are we focusing on areas that would generate growth or are we um, still consumption-based? And I think that there is a lot of pressure to support consumption-based elements within the budget. Yeah. Uh, and here, I think this is where I think government hasn't sat down and said, look, what is our five-year or 10-year plan? It's not going to be easy. Not everyone would benefit in the short term, but everyone will benefit or most people will benefit in the long term. And I, you know, and that's when you start saying, okay, look, let's, let's build this puzzle. Let's, let's build, put money into in, in, in investment in infrastructure. Let's fix municipalities. Let's fix our school and what, what Michael said about basic education is, is excellent because um, our, especially childhood, early childhood development is actually very, very poor. That needs investment. You talked about um, uh, Michael Kopane uh, earlier. That, you know, yeah. the, 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 you know the, the, those, we need to ensure that the, there's, we don't have that situation mm. happening again. Mm. But at the expense of what we've put money in now, and yes, it's going to, Kosachi would be very upset. I think a lot of poor people who, or people who are unemployed currently will want um, support from government. Small businesses will want support from government. But we need to like put a hierarchy of needs and target it and say, look, these are sure. the things that we need to prioritize. And this is why, because the multiplier effect of targeting these things will be massive in the next 10 years. Yeah. The problem with politics is that it doesn't allow anyone to think beyond five years. And when you get to the five-year mark, you think to the next five years. So there's no, we're going to do this until the next, you know, 10 years. Um, and we're going to take these baby steps to get there. And yeah. because of that, there is, a, you know, we tend to over-promise over because we want to do everything now to show yeah. that we're doing something and to appease you so that you can reward us during the election mm -hmm. cycle. Okay, if you're watching this, I've got a question for you. Uh, you've heard Michael, Tabi, and the DG talk about the reality that there are competing interests. If you had to prioritize them, Tabi says we have to accept that you can't have your cake and eat it, and therefore you've got to make some tough choices and hope that in the medium to the long term that they will be good for the overall national health, economic health, social health, political health, good for our democratic project. So as a stakeholder in this discussion, what would you prioritize? Would you, for example, say, I know it's difficult, but um, let's cut down on how much we allocate to social grants even and do something else with that, stimulate, I don't know, entrepreneurship, whatever the case might be. You can't boil the ocean at the risk of sounding like a management consultant. So if you had to constrain your project to choose a couple of feasible projects that will define what it is that we focus on in terms of that cohesive national vision that Michael spoke about in his open remarks. How would you articulate it as a South African? Just give us some comments on that and um, I will read some of them out. My producer will make sure I get them. Michael, let's talk about growing the pie. Um, the minister told us real GDP growth of 2.1% is projected for 2022. Over the next three years, GDP growth is expected to average 1.8%. That number depresses me. Uh, you don't need to be an economics major to know that 1.8% is impossible for us to deal with 
the other things that we've been speaking about periodically, poverty, unemployment, inequality. We have to grow more than that. In your estimation, what is a growth target that would be conducive to dealing with the malaise of unemployment, inequality, and poverty? And how do we get there? Uh, yes, so so certainly uh, 1.8% is, is, is not sufficient. Uh, and if we just put it in, in, in the, this context, uh, I mentioned earlier that the UK has the same number of people, but their economy is so much bigger than ours. Now, the number of people in South Africa is growing at about 1.6 or 1.7% per annum. So it means the economy is growing more slowly number of people. So uh, on average, we are all getting poorer. And this has been the case for the last uh, decade. Uh, and it looks like it's going to be the case for, for the next uh, few years. Now, uh, what, what, how do we get growth faster? It seems to me, I mean, there's a very obvious growth that we all know what it is. It's ESCOM. Because if you, I, I mean, the more you grow, the more energy you will require. So if we have load shedding now, when growth is only 1% or 2%, imagine what will happen if growth is 3%, because 3% growth means more factories, more mines, more shops that need more electricity. And quite frankly, the electricity will not be there. So we cannot, uh, even in, the, in a short to medium term sense, in a very myopic sense, grow faster than, than, uh, than the speed limit if we do not have much stronger investment in our capacity to generate and distribute electricity. And I would say that that links very strongly to a second. So, so, so that's a kind of short term thing that just simply has to happen. But going beyond that in the longer term, the world is going through this transition, whether we like it or not. We, we, we in, in these issues, we are, uh, we, 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 we're told what to do by the rest of the world. The world is going through a transition towards a climate neutral economy. And I would think what we need to do to grow over term is to come up with some kind of way of restructuring our economy. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it, we, we tend to end up in a, in, in a lot of debates about structural reform or economic transformation. Uh, and those things I don't think are so useful because the, 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 it's a jargon term that is so wide ranging. Nobody really knows what it means. <laughs> we need a strategy to overcome the electricity constraint in the short run and in the medium to long run to, to fundamentally change our economy. Uh, in a whole lot of respects, to be a carbon neutral economy that is more equal and uh, along a whole lot of di dimensions. So if you were to say to me, as you have asked me, how do we get growth? I think what we need to really look at is the energy sector. And if we could just do that one thing, uh, be, have some consensus and clarity of the path of reform in the energy sector, I think we would mm. be going a long way towards some, mm. some kind of growth path. I'll bring you back in just now, Tabi. I want to read some comments out and engage some of them. You can also respond to them, both of you. Uh, Yongisa says, very true what Tabi had said about resources and how they are spent. They are simply just misspent. Uh, so that's that's important. And CD says, 
uh, accounting for inflation, ECD, um, early childhood development, that is, and other important public expenditure will be decreasing um, in the medium-term expenditure framework. Uh, so that's a comment there. And then we've got Neil. How's it, Neil? You know, I love you to bits, saying you should have the other side of the argument. Clearly, Neil thinks that you are insufficiently left-wing, Tubby, just like one or two other mutual friends of ours have said to me privately, yo, have you seen what's happened to Tubby? Doesn't seem like she is um, remembering the importance of um, egalitarianism when it comes to judging the budget. Is this budget, in your opinion, before we get back to growth, just to, to, to speak into some of Neil's concerns, do you think this budget can be characterized as pro-poor? Or do you think that the left that you maligned earlier should be taken more seriously in their critique about whether this budget actually sufficiently addresses the livelihoods and the circumstances of people living under conditions of poverty? You know, I, I think that um, it was a fair balancing act between, you know, being conscious of the increasing debt, but also at the same time being aware of um, the impact of COVID on many South Africans, high unemployment rate, increased uh, uh, um, the high levels of poverty. So I think it was it was fair, and I just wouldn't want it to be, you know, to lean more on one side than the other. Um, I, how do we deal with the poverty and unemployment? It's not really through budget allocation as we've been talking about, and that's what where I differ completely with the likes of Neil because Neil has been quiet all along for the past 20 years or so, when unemployment has been deteriorating, when GDP has been deteriorating. And I can say this about Kosato as well, who are actually part of the ANC. So um, this week, we didn't find us, we didn't wake up and find ourselves in this position. We have been slowly deteriorating. And some of us have been saying, guys, we are in a crisis when it comes to unemployment, when the unemployment rate went above 25%. And we said, this is unacceptable. We need to deal with the unemployment rate. So now here we are at, you know, where, where unemployment rate, if you look at the broader definition, is almost 50%, just under 50% of the working population is unemployed and poverty levels have increased. And we now want to throw everything at um, the problem in terms of, you know, unemployment and, and poverty. So I think, again, we need to step back and say, so what are we trying to solve for? We need to grow the economy. How do we grow the economy? We need to get broader participation between, you know, at least a healthy participation of, of um, the private sector and also the uh, government, the public sector. The private, if you speak to the private sector, they've done, they are knocking on government's doors right now to say, look, we are able to help. Um, there are restrictions, there are regulations, we cannot... Um, we, we cannot operate in this quite restrict, restrictive environment. Here's an example. There's currently a need for nurses in this country, both in the public and the private and, and private hospitals. They are waiting for nurses to, to be, to, they're waiting to employ these nurses. But nurses are, have to be certified by the nursing council. So what happens is, and also private hospitals are saying, we want to train, we have the budget to train nurses. And so we want to train nurses and not for ourselves only, 
for the country, for all hospitals, public and private. But you can't train, private hospitals can't train nurses uh, because a, nurse, a nursing council is not allowing them to do so. So then what happens is that, and also once these nurses are trained, they then sit unemployed. Never mind that when they are trained, they get a stipend. They become unemployed. So they get that three, they sit in getting the 350 instead of being absorbed by your private hospitals that need them desperately. Why? Because a nursing council is not giving them the certification quick enough. It takes sometimes two years for these people to get a, um, a certification. That's just another example. But if you speak to every sector, they will tell you that this is what we're doing. We're waiting on government. Government is not allowing us to do this. Government is not allowing us to do that. That is what I'd like to see our likes of Neil actually talk about, to say, look, these are the problems that companies are finding themselves in. We need to start employing. There's, there are opportunities here, there, and there, and let's push people into employment. The other thing is that our municipalities, we've been speaking about this the whole time, they are not functioning. I'm yet to hear certain people, including Neil, saying, hey, you know what? There's a huge problem with our municipalities and, and, and the fact that our municipalities are not operating efficiently is directly related to poverty in, the, in, in certain areas or regions in our, in our country. That is not spoken about. So I don't but find probably, I, giving 350 yeah. a solution, uh, um, Eusebius. And that's because in my adult life, I've been helping a lot of poor people who are not only in my family, but other people too. And I'm not giving them 350. I'm giving them a lot more of, uh, than that because that's what they, they, they're asking me for. There are a lot of students who send me emails to say, look, Tabi, I mm. can't pay my fees. Or there was one student from the Northwest who couldn't go home in December. And, and he needed transportation and to return and food, and it was 1,700, it wasn't 350. So for me, who knows poverty and poverty in the family, not just as a concept, I am not accepting 350, I'm accepting a long-term solution of job creation. And that's my stance on this matter. So you can talk about, again, austerity measures, which is something that <laughs> gets me hot under the collar because there are no, we don't have an austerity budget. What we, as you can see, our debt profile doesn't talk to that. We've cut in areas that we sh where we shouldn't have and funded areas where we shouldn't have like SOEs at the expense mm. of, let's say, education and um, you know, uh, hospital infrastructure. And yet, so you can't call that, hey, we've done, we, we have an austerity budget where we actually haven't even consolidated. We've spoken about mm. consolidating, but we haven't. Okay. And lastly, okay. on that matter, there are countries out there such as, you know, an example is Brazil, where you can actually shrink the, the, the expenditure whilst growing. And that's mm. because you utilize, you allocate your resources efficiently in areas that will generate growth whilst trimming the necessary fat. Hmm. So uh, uh, what for you, just in, in one minute, because I want to move to a different theme, what would be at a broad strategic level, what would be your pathway towards sustainable growth of ideally 4% and above? How do, we, how do we get there if you were part of the economic cluster? What would you be punting? I would say the, the, we should do away with the, uh, you know, the, the bottlenecks that companies are complaining about. We should do it away immediately. That will allow them to then grow and also employ more people. We should support small and medium-sized entities. Um, 
They need financial support currently. And I think that if we supported industry, especially the small and medium-sized entities, then they would employ more people because those, those are the entities that actually um, uh, were largely impacted by the, by the pandemic and also where they shed jobs as a result of the pandemic. So we need to protect those. We also need to, I know we talk about entrepreneurship as a, as a way to, you know, if you don't want to go to university or if you don't want you know, to be um, absorbed in, in the workforce, then be an entrepreneur. It's easier said than done. But at the same time, we're also not supporting those who want to be entrepreneurs. We okay. are not allocating our resources. We have DFIs that can actually um, put aside some level of or some sort of funding so that they can support young entrepreneurs. We also need to, you know, the, the Department of, of um, Small Businesses needs to walk with, just like banks do. When you, they give you a loan, they don't want you to fail because it has huge uh, um, ramifications yeah. for, you know, um, their operations. Uh, you know, they don't want their non-performing yeah. loan book to increase. So they need to walk with those people that they've extended loans to or grants. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily need to be yeah. a loan and ensure that these people are successful and they're employing. Mm -hmm. So there are many things that we can do that we're not doing and we're not, okay. and, and, and in the advocacy space, we're not hearing a lot of okay. voices um, mm -hmm. pushing for these things. Here's another comment. This one is from Facebook. Remember, you can give them to us via Facebook or from YouTube. Uh, Jackie says, how's it, Jackie? Jackie says, I would take the education slice, Eusebius, and I would focus on building more schools and increasing the quality and the quantity of teacher training. Michael, I don't want to box you as the Gumbaya voice in this discussion, but I think your opening remarks are important about the, if we don't find minimum consensus around a shared vision for how we're going to do this thing, then we are more likely to fail than were we to share something of a vision, even if there's differences in the detail. I agree with a lot of what Tabi was saying. I think Tabi is a very important voice in, in the public debate. I also agree with a lot of what self-styled, more left critics of government have to say, including Kosati generally and Neil uh, in particular. Um, I don't. I think what you said under your breath earlier is is important. That this dichotomy between the state and business is a false dichotomy, effectively, and that that kind of ideological labeling is good for a first year class. But quite frankly, in the real world, it's about the mix. It's never been about that false ideological distinction. We have been very state-centric in the last hour and 10 minutes. Can we focus, even though the budget comes from the state, can we focus on business? What, in your opinion, can business do to be an effective partner in terms of the social compact? Because all of our analyses thus far have 90% focused on state-centric analysis. Uh, so I think, uh, as Tabby was saying, that there are so, so prompted by your question about technical capacity of the state. And certainly there's a lot of low hanging fruit where uh, capacity exists in business that could help the state. And I, 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 in, in my comments that will follow, I don't mean to dismiss that. That's an important aspect of, of what can be done to improve the situation. 
However, I think uh, we, we, we have to become, uh, we, we have to, re why is South Africa not growing? What is, and and I, I, this is not a new problem. South Africa has not been growing. I've taken to say, you know, I was born in 1971. And I've taken to telling people that South Africa has not been growing since I was born. In 1971, the global regime changed in particular ways. And since then, South Africa has been falling behind uh, the global development frontier. And our productivity has been stagnating. Uh, and I think that one of the, so, so one of the reasons why we have uh, a low growth environment is because Uh, we have uh, very high levels of consumption, as, 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 as Tabi was saying. But I disagree with that quite a bit on, on, on the reason for that. The reason that we have this high cost of consumption is because the services that we consume are segregated. Not necessarily between black and white, but between the affluent and the rest of the population. So unlike in other social states, perhaps in Europe, where uh, everybody uses public services. In South Africa, only the poor use public services. And the affluent finance their own education, their own health care, their own uh, security services. And in many respects, if you look at some of the housing developments that are taking place in the country, it's almost like uh, they're, they're constructing their own separate society in which they live in which they don't depend on municipal government for anything. So what you have is a private sector that is uh, pandering to the consumption needs of the affluent top 10% of the population and a public sector that is left to pick up uh, for the remaining 90% of the population. And I don't think that is uh, sustainable. We have to find a way Not simply be, be because, you know, I would be very reluctant to cede responsibility for the production of healthcare workers to the private sector. The private sector has to be brought, uh, we have to create a single national health system. And uh, the private sector, and, and I also think, you know, we, in a sense, we talk too much about business and not enough about affluent households. Because our, our business in South Africa has two aspects. One is exports of minerals to the rest of the world. And the other is catering for affluent households. If you look at, at uh, uh, for instance, within the, the economic sectors, uh, there's one called community and social services, which, has a, which is mainly the public sector. But... It's not quite true to say that we have not had austerity, I must say, because over the last decade, employment in public health care, in public education, in public policing, the resources available in those public sectors have been constrained and, and, and declining in real terms. That's a fact. And as, this, as those resources have been declining, you've seen a massive rise in employment and growth and spending in private consumption of education, of healthcare, of private security. So all we're doing in a sense is shifting by, by constraining spending in the public sector, we're shifting resources 
into the private sector to fund the same things, but on a much more unequal and divided basis. And so I think we need to have uh, not a conversation that says, oh, the private sector is so good, they must uh, help us to be better as the public sector. We need to have a conversation that says, what are the sacrifices that affluent South Africans are going to make in order to make this country work? And if we're not prepared to have that conversation, I, I'm not very hopeful that we're going to have this. <laughs> Michael, can I? So I'm sorry if that's not yeah. by our uh, perspective no. that we're looking for. But actually, I, it's a two-way street. And uh, the private sector uh, has high profit rates, extremely high profit rates in South Africa that it gets uh, from, from its investments here yeah. and very low levels of investment that South mm. Africa gets in return. And, and if yeah. we're going to make this omelette of national unity, uh, some of the eggs that are going to have to break are going to be those private sector and affluent household eggs. I, I know Tabi wants to come in, but I want to, I suppose I want to shift a little bit from, from moderator role to analyst role and, and give an opinion. Uh, no, I don't want you to be Kumbaya. I want you to be honest. And where that lands is for the public to judge for themselves. And my listeners and my readers are smart and they have a stake in this debate and they can decide whether they agree or disagree. Fake agreement is not going to help us to grow the economy. My, my take, Michael, is that we don't critique business enough. And we also make assumptions about ethics. For example, when it comes to something we did not go into because I knew it would take up too much time and the clock is already ticking towards half past one when we will end. The question of a living wage, um, the debates we had over the last decade about what a rock drill operator should be paid in the mining sector, for example, often business want that question to be resolved by, by the markets. And as Michael Sandel said in a book title by a, a similar wording, um, markets do not care for morality. Markets are at best, and even this they don't often do, at best they are efficient allocative mechanisms, but they are morally blind. So we've got to ask tough questions about business instead of assuming that business is in this conversation with clean hands rather than rather than with dirty hands. Tabi, there's a lot in your thought bubble. Yes, thank you. So, you know, I I do disagree with, with Michael because resources are shifting because people are shifting. People are shifting because um, the private sector provides better education system, better healthcare system, better security system. If the the public sector was asked, you know, was competitive, then we'd be using public hospitals, going to public schools um, and relying on public security. So, and this is not even a affluent, non-affluent. You see it everywhere that even poor people are opting to, you know, sacrifice so much so that they can take their kids to a better um, private uh, and a cheaper, you know, not a, you know, not a Hilton, but a private school that is more affordable to them. Um, but yeah, I do I do agree there that if the government uh, did provide for these, um, you know, for for hospital care and education and security, if they if they did it efficiently, then many of us would go back to using you know public hospitals and public education. 
on on um on the you know business and that we we've given business a lot of leeway we haven't criticized businesses i think that's correct but i go back to what a statement that i said earlier the role of government is to regulate if you can't regulate then then you know uh you know business is going to run amok and so if you put the you know operating rules and you penalize those who don't abide by these operating rules then then um no one will then um uh risk their license operating license being taken away the other thing that is naturally moving towards um a more conscientious way of operating is that the world over is being rated businesses are being rated on an ESG um uh kind of profile what are they doing for the for the environment what are they doing for you know society and what are they you know what is their governance and they get scored by this including by rating agencies and this is seeing a shift globally including South Africa where companies cannot just um high you know pay people less because investors are saying look i'm not going to invest in a company that has that is um you know that uses that underpays or uses child labor etc i'm not going to invest in a company or a mining company that allows acid water to go into villages and so that is helping companies um uh, be a lot more uh, i guess conscientious too in terms of the how they're operating so i think where we were yes i think uh, businesses were allowed to just do whatever they they uh, whatever pleased them but i think we're moving into a world where we are a lot more aware of the need to be a lot you know more conscientious more kind to ourselves and to our environment Yeah, Tabi, I don't. I mean, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but I also enjoy a little bit of needling because you and I agree on so much. So I'm just going to ask you this little question on the last thing that you were saying. I think what you're saying is very important. Incentives matter when it comes to the operation of business and the regulatory environment, both the regulatory framework and its implementation through oversight mechanisms like the Competition Commission, for example, and the rest of the state is crucial if business is going to stick to. caring about the environment society and good governance spot on but i think government i think business still gets a free pass and maybe it's the moral philosophy graduate in me you shouldn't need to resort to lawfare in order to get business to do what it needs to do as a matter of good governance and as a matter of understanding that you are a sui generis economic actor as a legal person with moral duties in the society in which you operate and when it comes to south africa and analyzing where we've gone wrong the state capture is a good example almost all of our attention will be focused on the civil servant that went awry the department that has a political principle without a moral backbone and it's almost an afterthought to talk about mckinsey an afterthought to talk about pwc an afterthought to talk about bain business leadership of south africa can't even tick it out without you know knowing that that is the obvious thing to do so i do think that it is important to critique the state because the state has a monopoly on collecting taxes a monopoly on force and a monopoly on coming up with policy and laws but in this conversation i think we would be remiss not to agree that business has an enormous role to self regulate quite apart from what the state does absolutely i i think that it it has a role to self uh, regulate 
Um, and we do have organizations that shouldn't turn a blind eye because you're absolutely right that um, we have the LSA, we have BUSA, and they should keep uh, their members and actually non-members uh, in mm. check. But again, if the same companies, if you look at how they behave in certain countries, they behave badly in countries which allow them to behave badly. If you take a McKinsey, look at what McKinsey did in India, because it, India allowed them to do so. If you look at what they're doing in South Africa, what they did in South Africa, um, it, you know, it was a, 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 a good environment to behave that way. Uh, and so again, I think that as much as you know, our organizations that are business organizations you need to keep these, these, these businesses in check, we also need to ensure that the business environment doesn't allow for uh, business to behave in a way that is you know, corruption and um, you know, bribery, mismanagement, all those things, malfeasance, uh, that should definitely not happen, but it, it's easy these companies yeah. default to that in an environment that allows them to. And Absolutely. by the way, yeah. it's, I think as much as I've said that, I've been hearing a lot in, you know, the, the president also says this, when they talk about public corruption, it's almost like, yes, and you know, the public sector is also corrupt, almost as a way to soften the fact that actually government is corrupt. But again, if government wasn't corrupt, if government said, look, you don't behave in this way, you don't behave this way in our country, Otherwise, we're going to, uh, you, you have to leave. Businesses would never behave that way, especially international businesses that were involved yeah. in state capture. Absolutely. Stapelo says, Prof. Michael Sachs makes a good point. By the mere fact that politicians themselves use these private services supports uh, Tabilioka's point. If we had good healthcare, sound education system, then everyone would use them. And then Vusi says on Facebook, a slightly long comment, but a, a, a really important one. We need a total overhaul of the education system, uh, not just uh, people go through the system, but for the end product to address the needs of the country's economy. Currently, we are nanny state. Why not invest in vocational colleges, for example? Dependency on the state increase creates a messiah mentality. I'm not so sure about all of that, but we don't have time to engage all of it. But absolutely, the overall um, sort of overhauling of the system is important. I'll give each one of us a minute um, to submit our final thoughts. Um, and maybe we can start firstly with you, Tabby. Um, stepping back from all the minutiae um, at the level of sentiment, which also drives markets, how do you feel after yesterday? Look, in the short term, I'm okay. I think that, um, you know, Treasury did enough. I'm worried about... Uh, I'm worried about next year. I'm worried about the next couple of years. I think that with, uh, with the current GDP forecast that we have, these GDP forecasts are not going to um, chip away at the high unemployment rate. They're not going to move the dial in terms of, you know, the level of poverty that we have. Mm -hmm. um, so again, you know, we may not like um, structural reform. I think people are tired of it. People are tired of it because they hear it often. They hear it often because it's not implemented. And if there was implementation of, you know, um, what is it, Operation Bulingvela, um, then we wouldn't be talking about the, the need for structural reform. Lastly, if you look, take Treasury's forecasts and you say from 2015 to 2025, what would the average GDP be? And that GDP is just over 1% on average in 10 years. That's a dismal performance. 
Um, and so I think that we, as much as, yes, you, you, you forecast GDP based on the figures that you have and not the, what you, you wish for, but I just hope that we really work together. Neil, we work together in, in finding, you know, in, in finding solutions for all of us, not just for some of us, for all of us. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, and then, Michael, I'll give you a minute. You, you, you're in a wonderful position in this conversation. You know what it's like on the bureaucratic side, thinking through the budget. You also know from a social justice activism point of view, pressuring the state to be left-leaning and to have a deep commitment to egalitarianism. And then, as an academic, you understand that um, the reality is that sometimes there are deep design in other flaws, regardless of our shared politics. Okay, I was waiting for the question, but uh, in my concluding thoughts, I will say uh, you you mentioned uh, Eusebius uh, Michael Sandel, the the Harvard law professor, just now, hmm. and uh, there's a very there's a there's a quote of his that is very dear to my heart, which is that where where he says that democracy does not require perfect equality, but it does require citizens to share in a common life. What matters is that people of different backgrounds and social positions encounter one another and bump up against one another in the course of everyday life. For mm. this is how we learn to negotiate and abide by our differences and how we come to care for the common good." Close quote. Now, uh, what I see us doing uh, is affluent South Africans retreating from the majority into gated communities with private security, private education, private health care, uh, private provision of, uh, of basic infrastructure on the one hand, and on the other hand, a crisis of fiscal sustainability leading to the degradation of public services and public infrastructure on which the poor depend on the other hand. And so we are moving away from not towards a common society. And, and, and my concern about solutions like a basic income grant, which has much to recommend it, is that there's a sense in which that creates, that, that actually what it is doing is enabling us to sustain this segregation and division. Because now we're, we're, we're simply going to transfer some cash from the one economy to the other economy so that the two can continue going along in their many, merry direction. So I think uh, the, the, the budgets are always disappointing because there's never enough space to do what you want. But the real questions are political and, mm. and economic that uh, we need to address as a country. Beautifully put. And that's a wonderful note to end on. It's almost a promise that we will come back and have the other controversial debate, which is the basic income grant. But we will leave it there for today. We thank in absentia the DG of Treasury, Dondo. Uh, for giving us some input at the beginning of this discussion. And then we had Dr. Tabi Lioka, one of the country's uh, great public economists, and also Professor Michael Sachs, who has done enormous work both within state and also uh, within academia, and in particular, caring about inequality, but in the broader context of our wider set of economic challenges. Michael and Tabi, thanks so much for being part of the conversation. It's a pleasure. And thank you so much to all of you who are commenting, engaging, agreeing, disagreeing. It's far for the course. We don't want to be shouting into an echo chamber. 
We appreciate the diversity of opinion. Continue giving us recommendations for future guests, for future panels, topics you want us to explore. And remember to visit timeslive.co.za regularly where you will no doubt uh, be able to keep abreast of any future events, live ones that we have. Uh, this recording of Eusebius uh, on Times Live uh, was a fun one and engaging you in real time is fantastic. It doesn't feel as if we are speaking uh, to ourselves. So thanks so much for your active participation over the last one and a half hours. Thank you for tuning in and have a beautiful rest of uh, the Cruiser Thursday. <laughs>